We're in Malachi chapter 3, 16 to 18. Let me set this up for you. Uh, as I said, we are big fans of expository, verse-by-verse preaching. So Malachi is writing this letter sometime around 460 B.C. It's been about 80 years since the people came out of Babylonian captivity. It is a time of Persian rule and control. The people, while no longer in Babylonian captivity, while being back at home within their own borders, are still under Persian control. And so, what we see in the book of Malachi is we see a time of spiritual decay. Spiritual apathy. God's not really the priority that he should be in their lives. At all. Unfortunately, for us, some of us can relate with these people's stories more than we would like. The book of Malachi is essentially this. He opens and he essentially says, hey, God loves you. People of God, God loves you. It's good news. And then throughout the rest of the letter, it's indictment and indictment and indictment. That's essentially what Malachi is. I love you, but you've really messed up. You've messed up, and he points out their errors throughout this letter. Well, what's taken place, because I'm dropping some of you into the middle of a story, What's taken place up to this point is this. Uh, The previous section, which I did not read, was verses 13, 14, and 15. And so that's the section that bumps right up against our section tonight. And in that passage, as we discussed last week, the people essentially have their butts chewed out. They are indicted for their arrogant attitude, for their belligerent attitude against God, in which they now have come to this conclusion that it's pointless to serve him. Because after all, those who don't serve him, those who are bad, those who are wicked, those who are evil, man, they have a better life than we do. And we are serving him. Of course, serving him, I'll put in little air quotes, because for them, they're just going through the motions. Just, they're just checking the boxes. It's not a heart of worship. It's really just a attitude of religiosity for them. But that's what they're saying. They've they've come to this conclusion in the previous three verses, chapter 3, 13, 14, and 15. They believe it's pointless to serve God because those who don't actually have it better off anyways. So then we come to verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The word then also means in the original language at that time, as opposed to now. So, then, or at that time, probably referring to this time, approximately when the speakers of the harsh words in 3.13 to 15 were speaking. They were speaking harsh words against God. They, They had the arrogant and belligerent attitude against God. So he says, then, or at that time, when those guys who were arrogant and belligerent against God, when they were saying all that garbage against the Lord, 
At that time, there is another fraction. And they are not speaking harsh words against God. They are, it says, speaking with one another. And he describes them as, they fear the Lord. Then, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. There is another group other than the arrogant and the belligerent that were speaking harsh words against God. And this group, the distinction is that this group fears God. This group honors God. This group loves God. And they are speaking. Now, what they are speaking about, we don't know because the text doesn't say. And yet, perhaps we could imagine what those conversations might have looked like, might have sounded like. Perhaps it was conversations encouraging one another to repent, given the the storyline here. I don't know. I'm just speculating. So take a little trip with me. Perhaps they're, they're encouraging these conversations uh, are, are conversations of repentance, which in a practical way, sometimes we have these conversations. You say, no, we don't. We don't judge people. God doesn't, you know, we, we, we don't confront people on, on sin issues or anything like that. Well, have you not heard what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said? He says, better are wounds from a friend than kisses from an enemy. Make sure we read our Bibles. But perhaps they're conversations of repentance where they're sitting down with each other and saying, Dude, you say you love God, but I'm looking at your life, and for someone who says they love God, you are doing things or saying things or maybe not doing things that you should or should not do as a follower of God. And I'm concerned because I used to have that same disposition of sorts. And I'm worried about you. And, and if this is the case, then, then buddy, I love you, but you need to repent. I'm speculating, of course. Perhaps they were conversations of encouragement to one another. Perhaps these individuals, these individuals struggled maybe with Issues that Malachi had even confronted them on and they repented of. Maybe they struggled with some of those things like some of us sometimes do. For many of us, there are things in our former life before we came to know Jesus that we really wish we hadn't had done. Some of us, there's things in our life since we have met Jesus that we have done that we're not very proud of. And so I, I speculate that perhaps some of these conversations were conversations of encouragement. Where some of the individuals, maybe they still struggled with the shame or the guilt of what they had or had not done. I think in a very practical way, this could be very applicable. Like I said, I'm speculating. I know it doesn't say for sure what they said. I understand that. I know many people struggle with this, though. And Satan uses this as avenues to attack us. You really think God's going to love you? You know what you did. You know what you did there or there. You know what you 
looked at. You know what you said. You know how you didn't step up to the plate. You know, whatever it is. And he attacks you. You think God's going to love you? You think God's going to forgive you? Ever? Or you think someone else is? Do you think they're going to accept you and love you? Let me just say this, because I think so often we, we really diminish the atonement. By atonement, it's a fancy word for what Christ did on the cross for us. Okay? Fancy word, atonement. We like big fancy words here. We often come to this conclusion that Jesus dies so we get to go to heaven and be with him and life is awesome. And then we just leave it at that. I would tell you that Jesus didn't just die so you can go to heaven. Jesus also died for perhaps the shame, the guilt that you battle with on a daily, if not weekly basis. He did. He did. His blood covered those things. Maybe those things that still haunt you. You still regret doing. You messed up really big in this area of your life. He didn't just die so you go to heaven. He also died to take that shame. So how do you know? Romans 8.1 tells me as much. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is good news for us. It's really good news, guys. Um, For those of us who battle with sin, for those of us who are haunted by the lost battles that we've had with sin, the the text doesn't record the speech that these God-fearing people were having. I'm just speculating, knowing that throughout the context of this story... The people in general were messing up a whole lot. And we don't know. The text doesn't tell us whether or not this remnant of people were people that, who repented before God because of issues that Malachi had preached, and he preaches and then they repent, or if they were protected by sin, protected from temptation by God. Like the example in 1 Kings 19.18 where... There were 7,000 whom God had reserved. He reserved for himself who had not bowed the knee to the false god Baal. The Canaanite god of the storm. Or perhaps protected and reserved, like Paul says in Romans 11, 4-5, a remnant chosen by grace. Whether they fall into that category or whether they fall in the category where Malachi had preached and they repented and now they are, as Malachi records in 3.16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And it says, the Lord paid attention and he heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So God has heard what they've said. He's evaluated what they've said. And then he's had it recorded in a book. A book of remembrance, it said. And the point of this book of remembrance is that God has instructed that it be made of the righteous speech of those who feared and honored him. So that on that future day, a day that has not yet arrived, 
that they will be rewarded. Now, the extent to which this is a, a figurative description is difficult to tell. It is at least, at the very least, it is a way of affirming that God not only knows, but God also remembers and acts to reward the past actions of those who fear, honor, and love him. I will point out that the fact that a heavenly record of some sort is referred to several times elsewhere within the Bible, like Psalms 56.8, Isaiah 65.6, Jeremiah 22.30, the fact that such a heavenly record is mentioned in other places suggests that this is perhaps more than just a metaphor that's being used. The Bible mentions several different kinds of heavenly records. And of course, the one I want to point out here is from Revelation 20, verse 12, where John sees this scene of universal judgment, alluded to both in Daniel 7, 10, and 12, 1-2. Let me read this description to you. It's chilling. It comes from Revelation 20.12. The dead. There's a scene right there. The dead, great and small, standing before the throne. They're standing there before the throne of God. And books were opened. More than just one book, it says. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. There are, apparently, different sets of books. And here we see divine sovereignty meet head-to-head with human responsibility within this, this verse. There are... Uh, There is a book of divine decrees, but there also is a book of human deeds. Malachi, his is a book of remembrance. Not a book of decrees, his is a book of remembrance. And yet on the other hand, there is record of the deeds, not just of the righteous, but also of the wicked. The judgment will be handed out to the wicked. There is a book that records the actions of the wicked, and judgment will be handed out to them. And there is also one that records the righteous acts of those who love, serve, and honor God. Also see 2 Corinthians 5.10. Now that is to a certain point, the point here. It's a way for God to affirm that not only does he know everything, but that he also remembers and he also acts to reward the past actions of those who fear him, those who love him, those who honor him. And you may recall in chapter 3, 13 to 15, some of the people were making allegations and saying that he didn't do this. They said things like, it's in vain to serve God. There's no profit. There's nothing to be had. We don't get anything from it. Like, what's the profit of our keeping his charge? And so... God, through Malachi, is confronting their allegations in the previous section, right now. And I think it also poses another question for us. Is which set of books 
did you want to find your name or your story in? Because the reality is, is that John's scene of universal judgment that he describes to us is not some children's story. It is a scene of what is to come. The dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Which book do you want to find your name and your story in? Do you want to find it with the righteous? Do you want to find your name with those who love and serve God? Or do you you not care? Oftentimes we make the mistake and we're thinking, well, my name will clearly not be with the wicked because... I'm a good person. People love to spin Christianity into essentially nothing more than Christian morality. And so they make the assumption that they are over here with the righteous. Because after all, I do righteous things. I, I read my Bible. I go to church. You know, I throw some money in the plate when it comes by. I do religious things. These people were doing religious things, and Malachi is chewing their butt out and saying, it is no substitute for authentic, true worship to a holy God. No substitute. Which camp? Do you want to find your name associated with that of the righteous few or with that of the wicked? Oh, by the way, with the wicked are those who profess to love God, but they only serve God based on what they can get from God. Much like how we may approach an ATM machine. I think I used this illustration last week. That's why they were saying last week, what does it profit us to serve God? So we're going through the motions. We're doing all those spiritual things. We're approaching God, not because we want God. We're approaching it so we can make a withdrawal. We just want His gifts. That's it. Not Him, His gifts. What is He going to give to me? Is very much the mindset of the people in 3, 13 to 15. And so, there is a result. There's a book of remembrance in 3.16. You say, all right, so what? That's a good question to ask. What is the so what? What's the result of the book of remembrance? Well, he's going to explain the result in verse 17. He says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. So the first result of this memorandum of sorts, the first result of the book of remembrance is that on that coming day, God will make these righteous ones his, his own personal treasure. And to some of you, you might say, well, that doesn't sound very cool because I don't want to be his treasure. Like, the story would be cooler if he just gave me treasure. Him making me his treasure, don't care much about. He giving me treasure, I like the sounds of that better. And I would warn you, if that is perhaps your inclination or your disposition, that you don't fully understand this passage. And I would also warn you, as I said last week, in regards to 
the text 3, 13 to 15, that God will not be used as currency for the purchase of our own idols. If you don't want eternal life for any other reason than you want Jesus, you will not have it. You won't have it. If all you do is you just want eternal life so you don't go to hell, or I just want eternal life so I can hang out with my friends, if all you do, if, if you only want eternal life, and you don't want it for any other reason than you want Jesus, you will not have it. As John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To be cared for. To be valued. To be loved by the God of the universe. Who as Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Like before there was a universe. He had you in mind. He said I love you. I care for you. You're my treasure. And here he is saying that he will make up of these ones, these individuals, this group, his treasured possession. To be cared and valued and loved by the God of the universe, that's pretty freaking cool. And if that doesn't pump you up, I don't, I don't know what will. Like, I can't give you anything else. Like, There's nothing better than that that you can have. And, uh, and that's a problem for many people. That's a problem for a, a lot of Christians. American Christianity, in, in many regards, really messed up in this, in this way. And this is a problem. It doesn't have to be, but it can be a problem. Like I tell people all the time, like, my deepest desire is that you find your happiness and your joy and your satisfaction and your contentment in Jesus. And, and the world is constantly telling you to, to find your joy, find your happiness, find your satisfaction, find your contentment in that relationship or that job or this degree of power or money or influence or whatever it may be, that that will bring you what you're looking for. And the problem with the world is that their desires to be happy are too weak. Not too strong, they're, they're too weak. They are, as C.S. Lewis says, they're like kids. They're just sitting there in the ghetto, Making mud pies. Some of you have heard this illustration before. It's such a beautiful illustration. There they are. They're, they're in the ghetto. That's the world. And they're just making the mud. Just making the mud pies. And they have no idea what it means to take a holiday out at sea. You say, why would you sit there in the mud, playing in the mud when you could be on a cruise? Because they are far too easily pleased. And it gets so much better. 
when you see Jesus not as Sunday school answers, not as facts that you know, like God loves you, John 3.16, but when you see Jesus, when you begin to see him as better than anything else, uh, this is a problem sometimes. You know, I grow up, growing up, I hear, right, read your Bible, why? You're supposed to. Go to church, why? You're supposed to. Do this, pray, why? You're supposed to. And everything was just about duty, duty, duty. You're a Christian, you have a duty. You just do these things. Instead of saying, I, I want to read my Bible because I want to get to know this guy named Jesus better because he's exciting and he's breathtaking, he's magnificent and he's awesome. And he, Man, have you met my friend Jesus? Because I want you to meet him. Do you see him that way? Or for you, is it just about checking the box and and going through these motions and and I serve because I'm just trying to do that. I'm trying to to just serve. Let me make it real clear here. Let me be really clear here. I don't don't want to confuse you or you to misunderstand me. The Bible makes it clear from the start that this privileged position as God's treasured possession, that there are conditions. So I'm not throwing human responsibility to the wind. I'm letting it blow away. There, there are conditions, and the conditions are obedience. Just as perhaps you grow up, and mom and dad say, all right, little Joey, you make your bed, you do your chores, get your allowance. You don't do those things, you don't get your allowance. There are conditions of obedience that are involved here. Because I don't, and yet I say that, and also please don't confuse that I am arguing from some sort of works based system in which you can earn your right standing with God. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. Ephesians 2 8 through 9 hammers that through pretty clearly that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of. Jesus Christ alone. And that true faith involves repentance. That's, that's the message of the gospel. It's very different from pretty much any other religion. Different from any other religion in that regards, where it says you do good things to try to earn that right standing with the creator or the divine being or whatever it is. The message of the gospel, come on, you know exactly what I can say. You can probably quote it right now. The message of the gospel is that you suck. Okay? The message of the gospel is that you are so filthy, so ugly, so sinful, that you can't remedy your situation. You can't just scrub yourself and make yourself clean. You cannot do that. But there is one who can do that. And his name is Jesus. And he's pretty awesome. He's pretty great. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we should have died. He paid the price we could not afford to pay. So, there is this mysterious aspect of God making his people his privileged treasure, his own possession, and yet human responsibility that is involved here. As the Apostle Paul explains, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Romans 9, 6. So on this 
eschatological day, this future day, it hasn't come yet. It will be true Israel, the righteous remnant, who will be the Lord's own treasured possession. And yet it's not a false statement to say that God loves you. For any hearing my voice in here or listening online to this message, to say God loves you and is calling you, is calling you to himself to place your faith in him as the only one who can save you, to bow to his lordship, to repent of your sins, to turn. Because he is coming. Scripture uses lots of imagery for his coming. He is coming like a shepherd to claim his lost sheep and like a bridegroom coming for his bride. God will come again and he will claim his people who are prepared to meet him. Are you prepared to meet him? Like right now? I do not make the assumption I do not make the assumption, even if every single person here said, I am a Christian, I do not make the assumption that every single person in here is prepared to meet him. And of course, I base that on texts like Matthew 7 and Luke 6, that many people who think that they're prepared to meet him, I say, Jesus! And he says, why do you call me Lord? You call me Lord as if you know me. Away from me, I never knew you. Many people will one day be absolutely shocked as they are cast away into hell for all of eternity. They, I'm sure they knew facts about God. They knew all the memorized answers, the Sunday school things, but that's it. Like when they looked at God, when they looked at the cross, it's just, it's just information. Good information, but that's it. There's nothing more than that. Nothing life-changing, nothing beautiful, nothing satisfying, nothing... Wowing, you might say. Here's the second result. Second result. So we talked about the first result. First result of the book of remembrance. He's going to make them his special treasured possession. Remember, I said that should pump you up. Good news. Second result. He's going to spare. He's going, what does it say? Verse 17, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. They will be spared. The, the point here is this. In Malachi is that God's destructive judgment, it's coming. It's on the way. It will not be total. It will not be merciless. It will not be indiscriminate because God will spare those who fear him, who love him, who honor him. Not the ones that just go through the motions, because that's, you know, that's what they're told. Just do those things because you're supposed to and, you know, be a good person and all those other things. But those who have truly placed their hope in him, they won't be put to shame. That's the second result of the book of remembrance, that they're going to be spared. Now, you might think this is interesting. This comparison of a father sparing his son who serves him is rather surprising because nowhere else in the Old Testament does it explicitly refer to sons as working for or serving their human father? I'm pulling this from the New American Commentary, in case you wonder what my source is. Although, sons being under their father's authority and working for him is indisputable in this passage. The point is this. 
The diligent and the faithful son will be spared. There is a distinction that he's trying to make. You say, what's Malachi trying to do here? He's trying to make a distinction. He is making a distinction. He is drawing a contrast between those who he calls sons who serve him, who are faithful, and the other group. The other group, as we see in chapter 3, verse 14, who are saying, it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? See the distinction there? So we have the son who is faithful, who God's going to spare in in 3.17. And then we have the comparison with the other people in 3.14. Who are saying it's vain to serve God. What's the profit? We're serving God. We're trying to be, you know, good, moral people, whatever. Do the right thing. We don't get anything from it. Those are the ones that have the arrogant and belligerent attitude. And he's contrasting with those with the one, the son who is faithful, who is serving. He is making a distinction here. And in case that distinction isn't clear enough, he's going to do it in the very next verse. Verse 18. Then once more you shall see the, there's that word again, distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. He's trying to make a distinction. Verse 18, it says, Then once more you shall see. You shall see. The you here is taking us back to the dialogue in the previous section, verses 13 to 15. The dialogue of the harsh speakers, the ones who are really arrogant and just being nasty toward God. He's saying, You guys, you guys who are talking crap about me, oh, you're going to see this. You're going to see this right now. God directly answers them here. And we see how God is going to treat those who are truly his servants. Not to be confused with those who serve God. Not out of love. Not out of a, not, not out of a, a true heart of worship, you might say. But they just serve him because ah, they're supposed to. Maybe begrudgingly serve him. The psalmist, Psalms 100, verse 2, says, Serve the Lord with gladness. There is a type of service that God does not like. That, fine, got to go to church tonight. Got to read my Bible. I got to pray. Small group. If I don't go, Joe's probably going to text me or something. (sighs) Maybe. There is a type of service that he does not like. There is a type of service that does not please him. Serve the Lord with gladness, the psalmist tells us. And so he's making a distinction here. And those who are truly his servants will be rewarded. Not to be confused with the other group who go through the motions, who do just the religious type of things, and they call it service. And they will right now learn there is a difference between the righteous and the wicked. That God will spare those who belong to him on the coming day. For the righteous and the wicked will be distinguished. The righteous and the wicked will be distinguished. And of course they're saying, they've been saying throughout this story, if you look back in 2.17, not only 3.13 to 15, they're saying there, there is no distinction. Like they're better off than us. The bad guys, the ones that don't serve God. There's no distinction. And God is confronting them right now. There is a distinction. It is great news to be his treasured possession. 
It's great news to see Jesus for who he really is, not as some Sunday school rehearsed answer, but as the king of the universe. And if you see him that way right now, that's a miracle. And if you don't, I would encourage you to pray. Ask God to see him that way. One of my favorite stories comes from Matthew 16. Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi. He sits down with his disciples. He says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Well, Lord, some say that you're Elijah and some... Peter, hold on. Who do you say that I am? Well, Lord, some say that you're... He cuts them off. Peter, who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And he responds with, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. If that's how you see Jesus, that is a miracle. And if that's not how you see Jesus, if he's not better and more awesome and more beautiful and more satisfying and more glorious than anything else, you just know him as factual responses to questions and that's it and nothing more, I would encourage you to pray and ask him to help you see him that way, to be his treasured possession because he does love you. It's not a false statement to say that he loves you, that he died for you. So as the band comes, I'd like to pray. God, we love you. We worship you. You are good. We are not. We are nothing without you, Lord. And for those, God, who need to be encouraged, I pray they'd be encouraged today, knowing that those who know you and love you, it's because you've made them your treasured possession, and that's really, really good. Especially in the moments during the week where they, they don't feel special, they don't feel loved, they don't feel significant. Oh, I pray that the hearts of those who love you in here, that they'd be encouraged. That they would know that, hey, I'm God's boy. I'm God's daughter. He loves me. He adopted me before there was even a world, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 tells us, that they'd be encouraged. And for those of us maybe who were just going through the motions and we've been doing that like our whole life, that you would grant us, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.25, a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that you might make a miracle happen in our lives for us to see you this way. For us to see you. Give us, give the people, there's people in here and, and they don't see you this way as, as better than anything else as their greatest treasure, if it doesn't excite them, the thought of being your treasured possession, I pray that it would. That you would do a miracle in their lives. I pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in our great King Jesus' name.